Welcome back, everybody. Um, I love my job. I, I know I, I keep saying this, and I, I truly, truly, truly love it. And I get a chance to talk to incredible people. But if I had to just kind of take my pick, and if I had to choose somebody to talk to that has worked with most of the greatest actors of this generation and the past generation, who's worked with most of the greatest directors of this generation and the past generation, who has done an incredible uh, you know, boatload of stuff, if you will, and who cares about acting so much that she actually wrote a book about it. Uh, I would be hard pressed to find somebody better than my uh, guest who you see in front of you, Laura Lynn Coyote. Welcome to the program. Good to meet you. Likewise, I'm so, so excited. Uh, obviously, I've seen your work. Um, you know, I've been seeing your work since I think 1997, was it 1997? Yeah, I saw you in 97 first time on, on Friends. And then okay. I think in 99 on uh, For the Love of the Game, uh, I saw you there. So I've seen you uh, for, for quite a while throughout your career. <laughs> um, but I know you probably most from, uh, from Django Unchained uh, as uh, Miss Laura. And uh, I know you uh, even more from your book and uh, the No Small Parts. Uh, it's a book. I didn't buy it uh, because I was interviewing you. I bought it quite a while ago, uh, months, uh, at least at least six months ago, I bought this book. I saw it and I immediately uh, purchased it because it has so much uh, interesting information. And me as an actor who is playing small parts, uh, I'm not even at a point where I've done any guest stars. I, you know, I've been on a check avail for a guest star, but that's as far <laughs> as I'm going. Um, I am in a secondary market in Chicago. So there were so many things that I really wanted to talk about, and your book answered a lot of those questions. So I want to dive into your incredibly rich career on screen and uh, your book. Uh, and I guess let's kick it off with um, you started acting fairly late. And by that, we mean you weren't a child actress. I think you started right. when you were in the mid to late 20s. What made you kind of jump into it and say, yeah, this is my thing now? Uh, you know, that's one of those metaphysical stories that I usually have to be looking at the eyes of the people I tell it to. <laughs> okay. uh, um, then we can stop looking at the camera and we can just look at each other. <laughs> well, to, to make it more reality-based, um, you know, there are moments in your life where, where you realize that your path, that you thought what your life was going to be, you know, the ideas you had since childhood of, oh, when I grow up, I'm going to be this and that and the other, um, that sometimes life has another plan for you. So uh, in a practical sense, um, that was really what happened was that I, I was on track to start my doctorate. I had finished my master's and I was getting ready to start my doctorate in creative writing and English literature. Mm -hmm. And, um, and I was going to teach college. That was my plan and I was teaching college that's I was doing that and running a dress boutique and uh, modeling and um, you know sometimes I, I mean I was already a homeowner I was married I, I was very grown up at 25 and I, I really was on a path but it was all stuff that had you know like when you're growing up and your parents have a certain way of doing things and your neighbors have a certain way of doing things and your schoolmates and everyone around you is sort of on the same sort of path and you're all going in the same direction. And so it feels like you're on the right wave. Mm -hmm. But 
I, I think I just wasn't on the right wave. I think I had caught the wrong wave. And and so, yeah, I, I got knocked off of that wave and knocked onto this other wave. And when I found myself on the path of acting, I don't know exactly why this is my path. All I know is that um, it, it is undoubtedly what I'm supposed to be doing and life keeps letting me know that. Um, I, I understand that, and uh, I certainly want to hear more about the metaphysical stuff because that's 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 what I'm about. Uh, and I, I look at acting in metaphysical and uh, and spiritual terms. Um, one of the wonderful actresses I had on yesterday, she was talking about how she builds a character, and it's all about uh, kind of metaphysical elements and how do you feel and what does this person kind of seem like? What is the energy? And then bringing astrology into it and bringing other things into it. Oh, and this, this is this is all me. Uh, I, I swim in that world. Uh, I'm usually, you know, the the spiritual uh, conferences, uh, like celebrate your life conferences. I'm, you know, one of the only men in that conference of, uh, you know, a sea of hundreds of women who are <laughs> much more open to this uh, type of stuff. So this it's been uh, my life uh, for ever since I can remember. Well, so, you know, I myself as a personality, I'm an extremely practical person. Yeah. But, you know, there are some things that once you see them, you cannot unsee them. Once you hear them, you cannot unhear them. You know, that you just have to deal with that reality is way messier than yeah. practical thinking is. And so I myself personally am a very practical person. I think when you read my book, you get that, that I am yeah. a very practical person living in a dream world life. Yeah. And so, you know, it, it is it is a tricky thing for me. It's a tightrope. And and. To go back to the question of starting out later, how that applied to that was that I recognized very quickly that I, I mean, I'm very practical. So the second I figured out I was going into acting, I immediately read, this is back when we had to go to the library and pick up books and read them on paper, um, which you should still do. Libraries are amazing resources. But, uh, but I went and checked out every book that my local library had on anything about the business. And what they all let me know pretty quickly is that less than 1% of people who are in our union make enough money to live. Yep. And that that means I'm in the same 1% as Charlize Theron and Tom Cruise and you know. So most people will never make enough money. And I owned a house and was doing well and, and ran a, a really nice dress shop that you know, it was part of a chain and I, I, I was doing very well and getting ready to start my college professorship career, you know? So, so for me, the way to wrap my brain around it as a practical person was, okay, well then the job that I have ahead of me is to become a 1% person. I just have to become a one percenter and that's that. And so I got very, very um, smart about what that meant. And what I figured out is that meant I was going to be competing with Helen Hunt and Nicole Kidman and, you know, and people who had been at it since, I mean, Helen started at eight, Jodie Foster started at three, you know, and these were the people I was competing with, uh, Angelina Jolie. And, you know, this was Renee Zellweger. These are all people that were coming out when I was coming out and all of them had been working well far longer than I had. And even though they just appeared around the same time as I started working, and then people like Jodie Foster, and I grew up watching her, you know? So 
I figured out that, okay, if my competitors are all going to have these fold out resumes where they've been working since I've been breathing, I would have to be better than everybody. Yeah. So I got educated. And I know that that sounds counterintuitive that I started in my late 20s and decided to spend the next three to five years educating myself instead of running around in bikinis. But um, it made sense to me that if I wanted to do competitive work and be a one percenter and be in this for the long haul as an actual career, that I was going to have to master it as a craft. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's an incredible approach uh, because you are trying to bring sanity to an insane, uh, you know, uh, unpredictable <laughs> situation uh, and yeah. industry. So I, I I applaud you for it. And again, it, it shows in your book on, you know, here's what you did and why you did it and how to approach it. And that's why, again, we're going to link it right below this video. Please go check it out. Buy it. Uh, listen to it. I don't know. Is it available on Audible? I haven't checked that part yet. I haven't done the Audible yet. That is next on my list. I am getting, I'm gearing up for that. I have another thing in store and then, uh, yeah, I'm I'm on it. It's happening. Got it. So for the time being, please buy the book and then uh, yeah. we'll check out the Audible. <laughs> um, and again, when you started, uh, when you started your career, you had an incredible lesson, uh, which again is in your book and you talk about it, but I want people to know about it. You had an incredible life and acting lesson from Shirley uh, McLean, uh, <laughs> who kind of really showed you what to do, and then you took it and ran with it. And that's the part that I appreciate, uh, I think, most about you, is that you didn't pout, you didn't uh, take it the wrong way. You took it, said, oh, great, now I'll utilize it. And then you went on from there. So can you tell people about that experience? I will. And I will tell you, Artie Lang had such a different uh, reaction when he heard that story. He was like, you let her do that? What a... <laughs> so, but, yes, what happened was I was um, doing my very first film ever. And yeah. uh, first feature length film. And... It was the sequel to Terms of Endearment, which, you know, if you grew up in the 70s like I did, that was pretty much the movie other than Jaws. That was like pretty much the and Star Wars. It was like the movie. And yeah. it was it was such a work of genius on so many levels, not the least of which was Shirley MacLaine's incredible performance as Aurora. And so when I got the part, which is in, a, in and of itself a huge story about how I got that part. But in any case, once I got that part, I had, oh, like, I think five scenes and a montage that I did. The montage was hilarious, but uh, that was a day of shooting with puppies and balloons and all kinds of stuff. But in any case, um, I was playing uh, Juliette Lewis's co-star on a television show. And the part had been written for me. Uh, the guy thought I was a teenager. And so he wrote this part for me as a 19-year-old playing a 17-year-old on a TV show. And so I'm in a Catholic schoolgirl uniform. And I'm 31 by this point. Uh, so, uh, yeah, 31 when I got my first part in a movie. So um, the scene, all my other scenes got cut. The scene that's left, so you can see this for yourself, is a scene between me and Juliet are going to a, and Juliet Lewis had just come off her nomination for Cape Fear. And um, 
she and I were playing co-stars in this sitcom uh, and it's Halloween night and we're asking her parents to go to this party. We're saying goodbye, you know, I'm dressed as the Good Witch Glinda, she's dressed as an angel and uh, Shirley MacLaine is her grandmother and she is sitting in the studio audience and so the way the scene's supposed to go is we play our scene in the sitcom and then the camera turns to catch Shirley MacLaine reacting to her granddaughter being on TV. Yep. That's it. That's the scene. Then cut, right? No, <laughs> because Shirley turned and I watched her do it. She turned that moment with no lines, no dialogue whatsoever. All she's doing is clapping. She turned that moment into this epic story. It is such a moment. And I watched her do it. And as I watched her, I thought, oh my God, she's stealing the scene right out from under us. And sure enough, when you see the film, you'll see that all that's left of me in the entire movie is me dressed as the Good Witch Glinda saying bye, and then, you know, leaving as you do after you say bye. And then it cuts to Shirley doing her epic giant clapping thing. And I just, I realized that the biggest difference between what she was doing and what everybody else was doing was that she was giving herself permission to steal every scene she was in. And then she would see if she could earn it. And I thought, okay, that's how we play this game. I'm going to give myself permission to steal every scene it makes sense to steal, and then I'm gonna earn it. And that's what I've been doing. <laughs> yes, very successfully uh, since <laughs> that time. That's, that's, that's awesome. Um, it's so, it's so important to understand, and we're going to get into uh, kind of the, you know, why these small parts, if you will, why they're so important. But I learned uh, a lesson when I was, I think, about 14 or 15. I acted a lot when I was a kid in Ukraine. I'm from Ukraine originally. And uh, I was certain that this is my career. Um, you know, I was writing and scripting plays by that time. I was acting in uh, kind of lead roles. And I came to the United States, and I think a year later, I auditioned for uh, Fiddler on the Roof in the high school play. So, and I got a role as what I oh, had I that time. In high school, I didn't get the part. <laughs> uh, I got the part as what I, at that time, referred to as furniture. It was basically oh. <laughs> a, Russian, a Russian soldier who was just standing there. I refused and I said, you know, in, in my fury, how dare you give me this? nonsense i'm used to being the lead and playing two characters at the same time i uh, have you and i refused i didn't do the play and when i came home and i you know told all that fury to my dad uh he said well you know a long time ago there was a movie in which an actor had you know one line to say when he was serving dinner and he bowed and he said your dinner is served but the way that he said that earned them universal praise and he said you just missed your moment uh, I, of course, didn't listen to him at that time, but it stayed with me. So when I saw your book, it was kind of a flashback to that time. Right. Saying, yeah. So you talk about turning moments uh, into moments. Yeah, minutes into moments and those into a career. 
how do you do it? Well, for me, it's about the work. I, I, I spend a lot of time breaking down my scenes and I do a lot of um, detail work. I, uh, you know, for actor speak, I don't know that everybody listening speaks actor speak, but um, you know, I'm, I'm gonna make sure I have a moment before, I'm gonna make sure I have a moment after, I'm gonna make sure, for sure I'm gonna have an objective, a substitution, you know, I'm going to have done the work. Mm -hmm. As long as you know who you are, who you're talking to, what you want from them, uh, and how you plan to get that, you're you're set. But you know, the more time that I have with material, the more detailed I'm able to make it, the better the work can be. So I I the devil's in the details, and I like to dance in the details. That for me is where all the good stuff is. Also, I just try um, because I'm a writer, I have an advantage of understanding what writers are up to. Um, and I have a huge respect for what it is that writers do, but I also know that they're not actors and they don't have to put it on its feet. And so sometimes you have to ignore some of what's going on in the writing in order to understand what's going on in the character. So for example, I have to tell you as a grown woman, the thing that I see the very most is a lot of writers have um, limited language for women. Uh, emotionally and so now that i'm a woman over any time you get over i don't know 40 something there's like a rule that you go from having to be in your underwear all the time to now you have to cry all the time and so that that thing where it says she cries yeah parentheses she cries or parentheses crying or parentheses bursting out in tears you know they say it a million ways but they basically they don't have any other language for what a woman's reaction to any sort of dramatic moment might be other than crying i've been a woman my entire life and crying is almost never my go-to reaction to any event um yeah i have to feel safe in order to cry and usually when you're in a situation that makes you want to cry you're not safe so you just wouldn't or couldn't cry. Um, I can see uh, the value of being like Scarlett O'Hara in the moment where she cries to manipulate somebody. Like I could see that as an acting choice. But the idea that I would just cry because I'm sad or hurt or you said something that hurt my feelings or, uh, you know, it's just not how women operate in my experience and certainly not how this woman operates. So. Um, that gap between what a writer means, what he means is she reacts mm -hmm. in a human way, <laughs> you know? Um, and I say he because it's almost always a, a male writer who's doing this. So, and it's almost always a male writer that's getting their work made. Um, but yeah, when it, when it says she cries, I think, okay, she reacts in a human way to this moment. Well, that might mean I laugh. That might mean that I scream. It might mean that I get so quiet I can't even speak. It might mean that I get very angry. It might mean, it might mean a million things. So I explore that. And I like looking for what the writer meant as opposed to what the writer wrote. And I think that's another layer that, um, that's about permission too. A lot of times people don't realize they have permission to dig deep into the script and figure out what the scene really is. You know, not, as written but like what is it about why did that writer write that scene yeah um giving yourself permission is you know for me that's where my breakthrough kind of uh happened 
when I went from away from uh, thinking of, well, I can't do that to just doing it. And once I started doing that, kind of everything changed. And thank God that happened to me on my first film. Thank God I saw Shirley MacLaine in my first film. I don't know what would have become of me if I hadn't. Wow. Because this is a very tough business to stand out in a crowd. And, you know, the crowds that I've been able to stand out in are pretty remarkable. So, you know, if I hadn't worked with Shirley first, I don't know what would have become of me. It's true. So thank you, Shirley. Appreciate that. (laughs) Yes. Yes. Um, Well, and and she just had such a huge I let her impact me I, instead of defeat me, as you pointed out. Yeah, it's 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 uh, there are only two ways of reacting to something like that. Right. One is uh, to be defeated and uh, upset. And the other is to learn from it uh, and be thankful for what happened to you because you can grow from it as a person and yeah. as an artist. So I'm happy that you chose the latter. Um, I think your career would have been very different had you uh, not. Uh, I do, although I, I, I did. I was lucky that a, one of my mentors starting out was Richard Dreyfus, and that's a really good mentor to have. Yes, absolutely. And we'll get to Richard because he's one of my favorite actors of all time. I, I, I everything that I have seen him do, I, I can't find anything but uh, just pure joy in watching. Yeah. Um, so you've mentioned something that uh, there is a story behind how you got that role. Uh, would you mind sharing some of it? Oh well, that's a Richard story. Um, so. Okay. I I was just starting out and uh, I had gone in, um, no, I hadn't gone in yet. I was getting ready to go in and I told Richard, I said, I have this audition that I'm going in for. And he actually knew the casting person. She had come out of retirement to do this job. So he was like, oh, she's great, you'll love her. Um, and I said, well, do you have any words of wisdom for me? And he said, yes, make it so they can't sleep. Make it so they can't sleep at night thinking of how to put you in their movie. And I thought, okay, that sounded very uh, zen-like. Like the more you would try to do that, the worse it would be, you know, (laughs) like serenity now, you know, kind of thing. Like it just seemed like the more I would try and make them not sleep, the more it would just be awful. And I just couldn't think, what does that mean? What does that mean? So thank goodness I had trained so hard in New York and L.A. that mm-hmm. what I did with that information was just prepare, 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 prepare. And I had a really small part, really small part that I was auditioning for. Um, but I just prepared the heck out of it. Like it was, the, you know, biggest, bestest role in the history of film. Yeah. And so I go in for the audition. And I leave the casting director crying and she's loving it. And she's like, I don't know who you are, but you know, you're amazing. So I get the call back and I go in and it's the guy who wrote Steel Magnolias, which in my family, I mean, I have cousins that are named after the characters in that movie. Like that that movie is a pretty big movie for my family. So I was again, very excited to be, going in to read with the guy who wrote Steel Magnolias and Soap Dish, which I also love. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, so funny. Such a great movie. Um, that's a good rainy day during the Corona movie, Soap Dish. Uh, but in any case, um, so I go in and very quickly realize that he 
he's playing with me. He's, he's, he's saying like, oh, now do the whole thing angry. Now do the whole thing like, like she just um, dated your boyfriend. Now do the whole thing like uh, she's your long lost sister and you just met again. Now do the whole thing like, and he would just make up stuff and say, now do the whole thing like that. And it was such a short piece that I was able to just keep, you know, churning out these versions, you know, do it on your head, spinning in circles, whatever, do it like a, you know, whatever. So I realized he was playing with me, which meant he was having fun with me. And I couldn't figure out why he was doing that, but I figured out later. It was because I was so prepared that he realized he could like hit any tennis ball over the net and I was right there ready with my knees bent to hit it back. Yeah. And so I went home like, yes, I totally got that role. That role is mine and didn't hear anything. And then I, I guess it had been like a month or so. Wow. And I, yes. Excuse me. Oh. <laughs> so it had been like a month or so. And I get a call from my agent and she says, you know, that movie that you went in for. And I'm like, yeah. And she says, you didn't get it. And I said, well, I'm pretty sure I got that one. And she's like, <laughs> I, mean, I don't know what I was thinking. I was just starting out. I'm arguing with my agent. Yeah. She's like, no, you didn't. You didn't get it. And I'm like, no, I'm pretty sure I got that one. I'm pretty sure I got that one. She's like, nope, you really didn't get it. So I was very sad and depressed and, and hung up at the payphone because that's how old this is. Then got paged again by my commercial agents and like five minutes later. And so I found another payphone and called my commercial agents and they said, hey, do you remember that uh, audition you went for for a commercial in Paris, which had been like three months previous? And I said, sure. And they said, well, you booked it. And I was like, great, eight days in Paris. So I went to Paris, you know, I dried my tears and went to Paris and worked for eight days, had a wonderful time, worked with Bertrand Blier, who's a at that time, five Cesar winning actor, a uh, director. And, uh, you know, it was incredible. It was an incredible trip. And then I get home and my phone rings and it's my theatrical agent. And she says, you remember that movie that you didn't get? And I'm like, yes. <laughs> and she says, the director can't sleep at night. So he wrote a part for you. Okay. I mean, I don't know what to tell you. That's that's what you got to do. You got to make it so they can't sleep at night, figuring out how to put you in their movie. That's that's amazing. Uh, well, it's happened to me now a number of times. Yeah, and we're going to talk about one of those uh, in in a few minutes. Um, but the question that you know kind of uh, uh, arose is, how did you get uh, Richard Dreyfus uh, to be your mentor before you started uh, working? It's actually not that hard to okay. um, meet a mentor if you live in New York or LA, because um, you just have to remember that you're looking for a mentor, that you're, you know, you're looking for guidance. Yeah. I didn't have a particular idea in my head that Richard would be my mentor. I, I didn't even really, I couldn't even really say that I was looking for a mentor. What I was looking for was people to help me figure this out. Yeah. 
And I guess that would be a long way of saying mentor. Yeah. Um, I was living in New York, going to the American Academy, and I, they would provide free tickets to Broadway plays. Nice. And uh, so I went to like 70 of them or something. I mean, I just went all the time. And so when I would go, my friend Gennard Burks, who is an incredible actor, uh, but most people know him as uh, Mike Tyson's bodyguard in The Hangover. <laughs> yes. So, okay, okay, yeah. got him. So, so he, he and I are still very best buds. We, we started out together. And um, he would go and wait at the stage doors on Broadway and talk to the actors as they came out. So I started doing that. And the very last person that I spoke to before moving to LA was Richard. Okay. And I asked him the same question I always asked, which was, if you could go back and tell yourself one thing when you were starting out, what would it be? And I always got great answers for that. Um, I learned quite a bit from total strangers who were all, you know, people that you would be very admirous of. Um, but their information was what I was seeking. I wasn't seeking an autograph. I wanted the secrets, you know. Yeah. And he and I connected. And uh, I mean, what it was 30 years later now. So, <laughs> I mean, we're, we're still buds. His son just wrote me today. So. <laughs> Um, well, you know, talking about connection, guess what the last question that I always ask everybody is? Uh, ah. if, yeah, if you had a chance uh, to give one bit of acting advice to your younger self, what would that be? It's a great question because it's an opening question. Yeah. Yeah. So that's that's amazing. Okay. So uh, you've mentioned that you know having somebody write a role for you uh, it happened uh, a few times. So let's talk about uh, one of those times that happened. You uh, were in one of my other favorite films, of course. Uh, I don't know any films of uh, Quintons that I do not, uh, you know, that do not belong <laughs> on my favorite list. Um, I absolutely have seen them at least four or five times each. I think probably more than that, but anyway. So you were in uh, Kill Bill um, Volume Two, if you will, uh, in a scene with uh, with Michael uh, Madsen, right? Michael Madsen. Yes. Um, and uh, your it was it was a pretty short scene, and uh, you were Rocket, and that was pretty cool. I love the way that he uh, he did your name. Uh, I, I actually want to know how many takes that took because he obviously gave himself permission to uh, to play with things, but we'll we'll get to that in a minute. So uh, you did that scene, and you obviously made uh, a fan out of Quentin, who then you ended up working with on two other projects, and he wrote the uh, the part of, yeah, I think four in total, yep. And he wrote the part of uh, Miss Laura for you. So going back uh, to that moment, uh, first of all, how many takes uh, did Michael do, uh, and did he do all of them with the same kind of uh, way that he spit out your name? Well, as you see, it's a two shot. So we only had yeah. to do each take once. That we didn't have to do a lot of coverage and all that. Yeah. Um, we did that 13 takes, if I recall correctly. <laughs> Which is not not a lot and not a little. That's I would say that's about average on a on a Quentin set back then. 
Yeah, uh, yeah. I, I, yeah I, I love it. It's obviously very memorable just uh, from, from that name alone. And that's how I remember you as Rocket Bike. Well, he, he, yeah. yes, he totally did me a great service by turning that name into almost a cuss word. <laughs> so. yeah. uh, I'm sure it became a meme uh, after that. Uh, so. <laughs> we didn't have memes back then, but we should have. <laughs> If, if it's not a meme right now, it needs to be a meme. <laughs> so if anybody watching this, please, uh, please think. <laughs> um, and then, so what, uh, did you and Quentin ever talk about of what was it in that scene that kind of made him not sleep uh, at night and uh, write things for you? Um, the day we started shooting Django, the day I started shooting Django, um, Quentin, came to have a talk with me in my trailer and wanted me to know that he was hoping that this, he said, you know, you've never gotten your break where everybody would see what it is that you do. Yeah. And he felt that that was not right. And um, in part that is due to him because I actually had a way bigger part in Kill Bill uh, a 15-page role that shot in China, and on, and that became a 10-page different role, and then that became a five-page thing in Lancaster, California, and then that became the half a day in downtown that I that you now currently see. Yeah, yeah. So, so he had said to me when we first started um, talking about doing Kill Bill, I will never use you the way other big directors have used you: stick you in your underwear and give you five lines. And well, then he well, stuck yeah. me in my underwear and gave me three lines. So, so I think he always felt a little bit badly about that. He's a person that believes in fairness, and um, so I think he always felt a little badly that that is the way that played out. And uh, goodness knows I did. <laughs> so, <laughs> although I mean I love my Kill Bill role, so um, I I think that that just was something that. Um, he always had in his head. And then he met my mom at some point. And my mother is, she is such a Southern belle, she clangs. I mean, she is the most Southern, Southern belle. And I think when he met her, he saw this side of me he had never seen before that was this um, Louisiana belle that, uh, yeah, that he only knew me as an LA woman. So, to see this other side of me as this, you know, parasol toting, hoop skirt wearing type belt, he couldn't unsee it once he had seen it. And uh, and so I think that played into it too. I, we didn't discuss that, but I do. I, I secretly think that my mom helped me get that part. <laughs> so, and then he wrote it with me in, in mind, but I still had to get the part. Um, I had to audition and all that, but more to the point, I had to, keep the part because the studio wanted nothing to do with me. Uh, the studio almost never wants anything to do with me. I, I can't even tell you how, that is the story of my career on the on darker side of it. Okay. So, yeah, because so. I don't have any name value. Okay, we're, we're gonna move past that for now. <laughs> um, okay, so, yeah. uh, but you got it. You kept fighting and uh, you got the well, role. For me, I can't fight the studio. They always win, but Quentin can, and he won, and so I was able to retain my job. and And I am so grateful because um, 
you know, Laura Lee is probably one of the greatest roles I've gotten to play and certainly one of the greatest experiences for me as an actor being, you know, on a Quentin set for almost five months. I mean, it really was just extraordinary, just extraordinary. And he, he is, he's a filmmaker for our times, but he's also now becoming a filmmaker who's at the end of an era, mm -hmm. the era of film. Mm -hmm. Now in the future, when people are filmmakers, we're just using the word film, you know, sweetly. We don't like having an actor's reel, you know, there's no reels anymore. There's no film anymore. There's no tapes anymore. There's none of that. And he still shoots on film. Yeah, Quentin is, it's one of a kind. Uh, I, yeah, we, yes. we, can, we can have a discussion for the next three hours just on that. Absolutely, <laughs> and he's worthy of it, well worthy of it. Yeah, um, so again, being on that set and uh, being in scenes specifically, I, I know that I said you worked with some of the greatest actors ever, but just let's take a look at one of the scenes that you were in. You had uh, um, uh, Christoph Waltz, you had uh, Kerry Washington, you had Al Jackson, you had Leonardo DiCaprio. Uh, who did I miss? Uh, Dennis Christopher. Yeah, Dennis Christopher. Jamie Foxx. I'm sorry, Jamie. I, I can't believe I just missed you there. Uh, the titular character, yes. <laughs> just one of the scenes from a pure acting perspective. What was that like? And what was their process? And what, what did you take out of that that you're probably carrying with you still? Well, we shot that scene, that particular scene for several weeks, yeah. which is not normal. Normally you don't shoot one scene for several weeks. That is luxurious, it's true. but it's also a marathon. And, um, you know, I live in New Orleans. We're, we're, we're used to marathons. You know, we, we will go to 30 parades in 14 days, you know, like we, we, we're used to just finding the energy for things. Um, but that was, uh, it was the most interesting experience because, you know, I've been in lots of ensemble scenes with Academy Award winners and, and yeah. BAFTA winners and Emmy winners and Golden Globe winners and all, before, but that table was the most heavily laden table I've ever sat at in a movie. And mm -hmm. in particular, because at the head you have Sam Jackson, who is just numerically speaking, the highest grossing movie star of all the history of cinema, yeah. period. So there's that. <laughs> yep. And then you have, you know, Carrie, who's undoubtedly carrying the weight of a thousand women. Um, you have Jamie Foxx, who's already won an Academy Award by then. You have, uh, to me, well, Christoph, who, you know, comes from this background in soap operas where he's mm -hmm. all about camera and understands camera in a way that honestly, the rest of us are just ignorant about. And um, and then for me, the I, I really was so in love with the idea of getting to work with Dennis because Dennis was around before all those people. And I fell in love with his character in Breaking Away back in the 70s. I just, my mom took me to see that movie and I loved that movie. I still love that movie. It's one of my favorite movies of all time. Mm -hmm. And, 
you know, he followed it up with Chariots of Fire and all that. But for me, Breaking Away was just just one of the greatest movies ever. And I'm not even a guy. That's a total guy movie. But I loved it and his character in it. But more importantly, um, he's trained the way I was trained. So everybody at that table had different kinds of training and different tools they were bringing to the table. And then you have Leo, who is just born that way. Yeah. And yes, he gets coaching for dialect and things like that. You know, he's not above uh, learning, but he is gifted in a way that none of the rest of us are. He's just, he's something different. Yeah. Um, he's like Shirley. He's the only, he and Shirley MacLaine are the only two people in my entire career the only two people that while I was watching, while I'm in the scene with them, I start watching their movie of them and yeah. forget that I'm in the movie. And at some point I'm at that table and I have Quentin yelling, Laura, Laura. And I was like, oh, right, I'm in this movie. And had to wake up from my dream state and go back to work because he was so captivating. Leonardo DiCaprio is absolutely the most captivating actor working today yeah i right i am I'm, I'm in awe of uh, of him and in that scene you know my uh my best friend uh loves uh quentin's movies you know he's seen all of them many many more times than i did and uh he can't uh he still can't grasp the fact that uh leo you know broke the glass hurt his hand continued straight out and then used it uh in in the scene which i'm sure freaked carry out um it's he's still just in awe of that and and from an acting perspective i mean i i don't even know what to say i'm, I'm kind of speechless looking at that crowd and what they've done and I'm, I'm thankful that you actually said it because uh i don't know if if i were ever in that position i'm not sure if i wouldn't just be watching them <laughs> and forgetting completely that I'm a part of the scene. I'm happy that you said that because I think I'd be there too. Well, luckily, uh, luckily or unluckily, um, eating scenes are very technical. Yeah. You know, half a green bean now, half a green mm -hmm. bean later, because you have lines, you can't have a mouthful mm -hmm. of food. So you got to time your bites. You have to size your bites. You have, like there's a lot of technical stuff when you're eating in a scene. Yeah. And um, Quentin's very particular that when you're in an eating scene, everybody eats. Nobody is pretending to eat. Everybody's eating. And I always eat when I'm told to eat. But I did give myself permission that she would be very, you know, dainty and eat half of this and a bite of that and a tad of this and a tidbit of that. And so I did give myself permission to be dainty with my eating. But it's very technical. All that's very, I mean, they actually had to have a class to teach everybody uh, decorum for the table. Um, okay. I, I actually didn't have to take the class because I really am a Southern Belle. <laughs> so the, the lady asked me three questions and was like, no, you don't have to take this class. So, yeah. but everybody had to take this class of, you know, what plate is what, what glass is what, what fork is what, and how do you butter bread and how, you know, anyway. Um, yeah. So that, that, scene is extremely technical in addition we were doing camera tricks sadly the biggest one isn't in the cut of the movie that you see there's a uh, so much stuff that's not in the movie you can't believe the cutting room floor of that movie 
there are scenes between Leo and uh, Jamie, Sam and Jamie. That, I mean, there are scenes, there are Academy Award caliber scenes on the cutting room floor of that movie. It's incredible that I got to see and you'll never get to see. Um, but, but in any case, um, having it be so technical keeps you grounded in the fact that you're making a movie. And we were doing also this technical shot at some point, which we spent about a half a day on and that didn't end up getting used, where they would pull the table apart and move the camera through the middle of the table. So all of us would have to jump up whenever we weren't on camera and then settle back into our seats before the camera hit us. So that's a lot of, it, it's very technical. I know people think it must be, you know, so fun and whatever, and of course it is. But it's a job and it's a lot of work and a lot of what looks fun is very difficult. Yeah. So that, that's helpful though, in a way, because, you know, it, it, it gives you that um, reality-based structure of like, I am working, you know, <laughs> this is a movie. Look, other than working with Leo, I don't normally need it because I usually do remember I'm working. That's, I, I again, uh, I applaud you for that. I have no idea what I would be like. I haven't been in that situation yet, so we'll find out. Um, you've worked with uh, other incredible actors, obviously, as you mentioned, and uh, I'm just gonna name a few of my favorites. Uh, Kevin Costner, Richard Dreyfuss, uh, Gene Hackman, Dennis Hopper. I mean, th those four, uh, you know, started. They're all great. <laughs> yeah, yeah, started... I have nothing bad to say about any of them. Yeah, uh, nor would I ever ask you to do so. But um, <laughs> what, again, in terms of approaches, in terms of things that are useful uh, to you as an actor uh, and useful to uh, to the audience watching this, you know, what things were you able to kind of take out and utilize uh, after? Well, um, Gene Hackman and I did not, our scenes were shooting at the same time, but he's in one room and I'm in the other room. So we were together in the holding areas and at the meals and all that, but we weren't together on screen. So I never really got to act with Gene Hackman, which is kind of a shame. Um, yeah. But he actually was the person who walked out the door of the theater right before Richard walked out of the door of the theater. And yeah. if I had gone and chased Gene Hackman to ask him about what he would tell himself when he was first starting out, I would have missed meeting Richard <laughs> and missed that 30 year friendship. So, um, so I'm okay with missing the boat on Gene because it ends up being okay for me. Um, with Dennis, I was Dennis Hopper's boss, which is weird. Yeah. You know, because I was the producer. So again, he and I didn't have scenes, but I worked with him every single minute that he worked. Mm -hmm. um, that was an unusual circumstance. And we were so blessed because we were getting him to do all the things he said he'd never do. We got him on a motorcycle. We got him in the fringe jacket. We, mm -hmm. I mean, we, we easy ridered the heck out of that guy. Yep. And he had sworn he'd never do any of that. And we, we, we yep. persuaded him. Yep. And so we were able to get that done. And I, you know, he passed shortly thereafter as did David Carradine. And so I feel very blessed that I got to work with David twice and I got to work with Dennis once because they were both treasures in our industry. Mm -hmm. And between the two of them, they've literally done hundreds 
of movies. Mm-hmm. And there's an old Jewish saying that when a person dies, a library is burned. Those were two mighty big libraries that burned. Yeah. Well, and Dennis is also, you know, he's a director, he's a producer, he's, you know, he's a filmmaker. He, mm-hmm. he, that's a colossal loss to our industry to lose a voice as unique and strange as Dennis Hopper's. Mm-hmm. Um, Kevin Costner, uh, for me, is a lot of fun to work with because we are also buddies. Um, oh. So yeah, he's another person that I've known for decades. I met him because he bought Richard's house. <laughs> so, I see. So everything so leads, leads to Richard, got it. Everything does, and Quentin. They all lead to mm-hmm. Richard and Quentin for some reason. But in any case, um, so that was fun because we were already friends by the time we worked together. Mm-hmm. And there came a day when we were, I think it was our first day of shooting. I'm doing a massage scene with him. And I'm supposed to be massaging his back. And we rehearsed it several times. And because we're friends, I said to him, hey, Kevin, we, they broke for lunch. And I was like, hey, Kevin, you can't let him shoot you like this because your face is like this on the, you know, and you, you look like Wrinkle Man. And he said, what? And I said, no, seriously, your face is, uh, you look like a Sharpay. You can't let him shoot this. And so he said, okay, okay. So we come back from lunch and Sam Raimi, who's directing says, okay, so we're gonna have a slight change. Uh, we're gonna flip Kevin over. And I was like, yes. And so I wasn't thinking. That meant that the end of the scene where I'm supposed to put my hand up over, under the towel and on his behind. Now I have to put my hand under the towel. Yep. <laughs> And Sam Raimi starts blushing like a like a bride. I mean, it was hilarious. All of us suddenly were just like, oh, this <laughs> is becoming a different scene, you know? Mm-hmm. So, so we rolled with it. But but that is my answer of how it was to work with Kevin is it was very comfortable. I felt like I could tell him things and like we could work the two of us to conspire to have him look good. And, you know, yeah. And that's a nice thing to have. It's a nice luxury to have um, somebody looking out for you, which I was doing for him. And then to have everybody sort of, instead of that turning into a me too moment for me, have all of the men on set being like, oh Lord, how do we make this okay? Yeah. So, yeah. So I really, I like having allies on set. I like having friends on set. It's a scary business sometimes. So it's good to have friends in high places. Yeah, um, I'm very happy that uh, that worked out that way, and um, it's it's good because again, I am I'm a white man, so you know what do I know about uh, being in those situations? But as as a husband, as uh, as somebody who has a 16 year old daughter, these are the things that I'm really uh, conscientious of. So I'm very happy that you had uh, people in your corner. I did. I also have been in this industry way too long for it to be all a happy story, but but yes. That that one was a fun one. <laughs> good. All right. Which is um, because I spent the next scene was in my underwear. So, you know, it's it is yeah. good to feel safe. So Yeah. Yeah. Um let's dive into your book. Um, because I, I definitely want again, you know, here's the book. People please uh, go check it out. Uh, we'll have a link below. Um so you've mentioned again being unforgettable and not letting uh not letting the director sleep 
uh, or you know, the casting director sleep. Um, when I speak to casting directors and when I speak to a lot of the actors and when they're talking about going in for you know, smaller roles and you know, under fives and uh, co-stars, they're basically saying, look, just be yourself, relax, play the profession, now, don't try to show your entire acting repertoire uh, to the casting director because that's not why you're there. You're there to show what you are as a character. And then on the other hand, we have you of saying, make them not be able to sleep. How does one do both? Um, they're, they're right. Don't try and play a roster, play a role. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you're not trying to play all the roles at one time and show mm -hmm. them all your range and in, in the one line of your martini, sir. Mm. Um, you're just trying to show them that you're the person for this role. Uh, for Love of the Game is actually a good example. That I went in for three small parts in that movie, mm -hmm. um, and the other two parts were the ones I thought I was right for. Uh, one was a hotel manager, and the other, oh, I forget what the other one was. And then there was Debbie, and Debbie was described as tanned, blonde, buxom masseuse in Florida. Okay. Uh, at the time, Pamela Anderson was extremely popular. Yeah. And so basically that was what everybody wanted in every part was a Pamela Anderson. So this was described, Debbie was described as a, as a Pamela Anderson. I'm clearly mm -hmm. not that role. I'm, I'm not that girl. So, rather than worrying about how to do that, I thought, well, why is this role interesting? What is, what does it mean to me? And I decided right away that Debbie, who in the movie is no longer called Debbie, I guess they thought that name was too, too indicative of a buxom blonde. So now it's just called Masseuse. But um, which is also, it should be massage therapist, but in any case, mm -hmm. um, masseuse was, when I looked at the part, I was like, well, it seems really clear to me that she and Billy Chapel, the Kevin Costner character, uh, have an ongoing relationship, that every time he's in town with the team for spring training, that they get together and she's his training camp girlfriend. Mm -hmm. And so I just made that choice of like, I have a familiarity with Billy Chapel, and that when we're together, we're together, and when we're not, we're not. And so that every time he comes into town, I have to see where we're at, whether we're both single, whether, you know. Yeah. And so that's what the scene was about for me, was seeing where we're at. Are we both single? Are we both available? You, what you doing later? You up, you know, <laughs> like, so that kind of thing and I guess that wasn't what other people were doing with it and so I stood out in a crowd as somebody who was a lot like the Kelly Preston character who his, is his girlfriend in the movie and mm -hmm. I thought for sure as soon as I heard that it was Kelly that I wasn't going to get any part in this movie because typically speaking you're only allowed to have one one me in a movie so I don't get to work with Nicole Kidman. I don't get to work, you know, I don't get to work with anybody tall. I don't get to work with anybody with red hair. I don't get to work with anybody with curls. I don't get, you know, like that's, that's just done, 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 done. And 
So I thought for sure they wouldn't go for it. But Sam said, because I asked him, I was like, are you crazy? You cast me to play <laughs> the, other, the other girl. We look like the same girl. And he goes, yeah, that's the thing, is yeah. that it could just as well be you. Wouldn't that bother you more if you come to the door and you find him cheating on you with you? And I was like, yeah, that would bother me. That would bother me. I can't compete. I can deal with somebody being totally different than I am and something where I could go, oh God, that's what he wants to be with. Yeah. But if it's somebody just like me, then it's, that's unsettling. <laughs> like that's cellular level messed up, you know? So I thought it was kind of brilliant on his part to, to have Kevin have a type. Yeah, um, I agree. And thank you for that example. That actually makes a lot of sense and it goes, uh, into your approach um, and something that people can take away and uh, and run with. So again, it's it's about prep. It's about making choices and really understanding uh, you know where you fit it. I, I love it. Um, well, and you have to be patient too. You know, um, I went in for th four different roles on Treme mm -hmm. and found out later that one of the reasons that I wasn't booking those roles was because of Melissa. Le Melissa Leo has my hair color and curls and. So there, there was this, the Melissa problem where they couldn't hire me because of Melissa. And then at some point they needed an ex-wife for her boyfriend. Okay. And so then they were like, well, then maybe he had, maybe David Morris has a type. Yep. And so they thought it was just fine that they would hire me. And so it was finally my turn, you know? So be patient, uh, you know, yeah. and, and do your Keep job. Going. Um, so you mentioned again that no parts are small parts; they're only small actors. Um, why are there no small parts in your opinion? Well, actually, there are tons of small parts. That—that's the thing—is they're actually such an integral part of our industry and our careers. No matter what part of your career you're in, mm -hmm. you know. I mean, what is Keanu Reeves doing in between John Wick's? He's doing these little cameos and these little, you know, pop-ins yep. on other movies. Um, what is a commercial? It's 60 seconds. I don't care if you get the whole lead, you still only get 60 seconds to be the lead. Yep. So, you know, small parts are a part of every career. Also, every audition you do tends to be just some small part of the larger part, even if you're doing a large part. So small parts are, that's a career. That is part of being an actor is, is dealing with smaller parts. Um, yeah, and the longer you do this, the more odds there are that you're going to end up doing cameos and commercials and all that kind of thing that are small parts. So it's not a thing of like you do them in the beginning and then you never do them again. They're, they're parts. And I think the thing that people get confused by is they think that the part is contained in that one line and that's it. That's all they got to do is think about that one little line and then they're done. It's a whole character. You're just only seeing that one line but you still have to develop the entire character because they don't know they only have one line in the movie. They're living their life. They have a whole life. You're just only getting a window into one line of it. You're a martini, sir. <laughs> so, yeah. So I think it's, it's kind of a mistake to think of it in that way of, I don't know, the word small. I was, I was cautioned about putting the word small in my title. 
because uh, I was told that people aren't going to want to learn about small parts because everybody wants the big parts. And I thought, yeah, that's why there's no book about this. <laughs> this book needs to be written. Somebody needs to write a practical guide to the whole career, you know, everything from how to talk to celebrities to how to get a free dress on the red carpet, when to move to LA, when to get an agent, when to join the union, all that's in there. But also this idea that there is no such thing as a small part. That's not really a thing. There's just the what makes it to the end of the film. And trust me, you can have a huge part. You can be Kevin Costner in The Big Chill and end up being Kevin Costner in The Big Chill, which is to say, he's not in that movie. There are tons of movies. Be in a, um, who's the guy? Oh, The Thin Blue Line, was it? Or The Thin Red Line? Oh God, what is the, the name? I'm, trying. Yeah. I'm sorry? The Thin Red Line, I think that's the name of the uh, the movie, but uh, who's the actor? Malick. Terrence Malick. Terrence yeah. Malick, if you work in a Terrence Malick movie, your odds of making it to the final cut are like 60%. He cuts all kinds of Academy Award winners out of his movies. He doesn't care. <laughs> that's not, he just, that's not what he's interested in. He's not doing, he's not shooting you because you have awards. He's shooting you because he thought you were right for the role. And then he realized he's not making that movie after all. He's making this other kind of movie that's sort of like that original idea he had, but not really. Mm -hmm. And you end up on the cutting room floor. So what happens, again, for the actors who are not familiar with it, and uh, I think I know the answer, but I want to ask you. So if you were cast in a movie, you were in the movie, uh, you didn't make it uh, to the uh, through the final cuts, what happens? Is this a credit that you can uh, use? Uh, yeah. You're still getting paid for it. So what are the technical aspects of it? You still, I mean, I don't know all the rules, but I do know. Obviously, you get the credit for the work. You did the work. You did all okay. of the work, no matter mm -hmm. what ends up in the film. So you get the credit. Um, even if it has to say uncredited, you still get yeah. the credit. Uh, and I think in most cases, you still get the money. Okay. So yeah, uh, obviously you're not getting paid for your days, which is a big part of how our pay scale is figured out for residuals is how many days you worked. Mm -hmm. So you're not getting paid for your days if you didn't work. Um, but if you end up cut, if you worked three months and they cut you, you, you get paid for your three months. I mean, you get residuals based on your three months. So, you know, it's being cut is not the worst thing that can happen. I know that it's awful. And I had never really experienced it very much until I moved to Louisiana, where most of the casting here is leftover parts. So these are the parts that, you know, are the first to be cut when you run long. And um so I've, I've, I've been cut out of a couple things here. In particular, the one that hurt the most, I think, was um, Maggie, the Arnold Schwarzenegger movie with Abigail Breslin. Yeah. I played Arnold's sister. Are you telling me I never get to see me on camera playing Arnold's sister? I'm sorry. I know, I, I know that I've worked with all these Academy Award winners. It's Arnold. <laughs> Arnold. It's Arnold, he was the biggest movie star of all time when I was growing up. Yeah. So, you know, I I was super duper thrilled to be working with him. Plus he was my governor for a while. Right. Um, yeah. yeah, I lived in LA when he was governor. Um, the governor. But- uh, Welcome to California. Yes, yes. 
but uh, he was a delight to work with, by the way. Um, I'd met him socially a couple times, but he was really great to work with. And and it was a magical experience, the whole thing. It, we were shooting out on a plantation in Louisiana. There were two little girls that sang to us as the sun was setting. I mean, it was incredible. It was such an experience. And sadly, I've never even seen any of the footage. I'm so sorry. Uh, I am too. I am too. The, the, it was one of the director's favorite scenes. It was one of the writer's favorite scenes. So. Yeah. Um, I, you know, uh, I'm 45 years old. So I grew up, uh, you know, my, my kind of formative years was, uh, was Arnold, was uh, Jean-Claude Van Damme. Uh, I started working out because of one and I started doing the splits because of the other. So uh, <laughs> it's, that's, that's basically kind of my, uh, my teen, uh, my teen years. Um, okay. So. In terms of types, and you talk about types in your book, um, you know, if I if I were looking at my type, I'm laughing because I think I look, I think I look like Andy Sandberg doing a Nick Cage, <laughs> but, uh, but you know, with with whatever is happening with my hair right now. But you know, your hair after, is doing way better than my hair. My hair usually it's it's long, so it's it's in my. It's in my <laughs> Face and I got sick of it, so I basically just kind of uh, you know put that up, and then I'm looking at myself saying, "Okay, Nick, hi." Um, <laughs> what? How do actors get to know what their type is, uh, in your opinion? Well, there are several ways. When you're just starting out and have no other feedback loop, the best way to find out is to ask your uh, fellow actors that you're starting out with, or your friends and you know your friends and family are going to be biased because they see you the way they saw you when you were eight. So they're going to be inaccurate, but they can give you some information. Best information is from people that meet you in acting classes or, um, you know, who meet you out in the world. Uh, mm -hmm. And you ask them, what, what would you cast me as? And if you have a group of acting friends, you can do this for each other. Um, I used to do an exercise when I would do acting seminars where I'd have everybody write down three things they thought they were perfect for. And yeah. then I would choose people and say, now tell me your three things. And we would, as a room, help them figure out, oh, yes, you're perfect for that. Or no, I don't see you as that at all. I don't see that at all. Mm -hmm. I see you more like this. So um, we would help them develop a new, more accurate list. But mm -hmm. I would say that, you know, it is important to know uh, where you fit in. Eventually, the industry is going to tell you and it will change. So just when you think you have your finger on it, it will shift. Um, yep. I thought that I was going, you know, I, I told you, I entered the industry late. I, I was super educated and, you know, very responsible and all that. So I thought I would be playing young attorneys and, and not even that young. But yeah, I did know that I looked like a kid. Um, but, you know, young attorneys and, uh, you know, I don't know entrepreneurs and smarty pants, teachers, whatever, you know, smarty pants people. No, I played people with no pants. I played underwear girl in everything. I was underwear girl all the time. Now here's the thing. I actually had that information from the planet and I ignored it because one way I paid my way through college and through acting school and all that was modeling. And in particular, I did very well in the underwear and swimsuit world. Um, I was a fit model and a showroom model in the underwear and, and swimsuit world. So, you know, th that means they think you have a perfect body for that, you know? So 
I wasn't paying attention to that because I was just using it to pay my bills. And I never let my ego get very wrapped up in the fact that I was a model. Um, you know, it was my money. It was my money. And so I didn't think of it that that's the way the world sees me. Is it, But clearly, if they pay you for that, that's how they see you. And if they pay you to be the 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 prototype, the mannequin for it, that's mm -hmm. what you look like to them. So mm -hmm. I wasn't paying attention to that, and I should have, because that is how the planet saw me at that time. And that was where my money was. And so the industry didn't betray me. They spotted me. They yeah. spotted me in a crowd and went, oh, there's an underwear girl. Yeah. Let's take her clothes off. <laughs> so, you know, let's shoot her from behind. Let's get her in a belly shirt. Let's, you know, whatever. So I played a lot of girlfriend parts and all that kind of stuff when I was starting out. Mm -hmm. um, Quentin called me the Joe Mother Lewis of the under five in her underwear. And uh, I, I did that until, well, before that, I was playing sort of the perfect girlfriend who would never get the guy because the quirky girl would get the guy. Mm -hmm. And then somewhere in there, which wasn't very interesting, by the way. And then somewhere in there, I did Enemy of the State. And that switched everything up to, okay, now I'm the girl you didn't know would go there. Mm -hmm. So I'm the girl who appears to be one thing, but actually is this other thing. And mm -hmm. that was way more fun to play. And I played that for at least 10 years. And I loved that. That was awesome. Yeah. And then, like I said, it's been an adjustment getting older and finding out that, um, it's hard for me to get the role of mom. Um, I don't have the childbearing hip look. And so I don't look mom-ish, um, but I have played moms and the moms that I have played, um, I, I, I've played, I guess, a variety of moms, mm -hmm. um, but I do find a lot of the roles I play now are about crying. And that that's a lot of what's out there for women my age is, is I just lost my child or I just lost my husband or I just lost something. I don't know, my house, my car, whatever. I lost something. <laughs> and um, so there's a lot of that. Uh, I still get those. I still, though, to this day, I can't believe I'm in my mid 50s. I still get these roles that are like these hypersexual. Like. <laughs> So what I take it as is a it's sort of a failure of our, of imagination in our industry. Right. There there is a there's so much if you watch British television or British film you, or French cinema or whatever, you see there's so much more for women to do. I mean, you can be Maggie Smith till you die of being Maggie Smith. I mean, yeah. Maggie Smith is going to play interesting, amazing characters her entire life. True. And God bless her for it. She is one of my very favorite actors. And if you don't know her work out there, acquaint yourself. She is a gift. Yeah. She can do more with an arched eyebrow than the rest of us can do with an entire script. So, you know, she just changes the world with one look. But, yeah. um, you know, she is given the opportunity to do that. She's given these roles that are, you know, truly well-developed people, not yeah. women. I'm a person just like you. <laughs> so I, I look forward to uh, the evolution of, of film continuing to include more and more uh, people of color, 
people mm. of vaginas, people of, you know, the, mm. the variety of us that have other stories to tell. I've been told my whole life that there are only seven or 12, depending on who you ask, stories to tell. And I, every time I've heard that, I've thought, mm. okay, but nobody ever asked us our stories. Yeah. Yeah. Um, do you find that the industry, again, I, I think from what I'm seeing and, uh, and hearing, uh, you know, talking to people, I see the industry be, uh, is becoming more inclusive and diverse. Do you, with more, you know, women directors and with more women writers, do you see that, you know, from the perspective of the roles that you're seeing, it's getting better or we're still not uh, even close? Both are true. Yes. Okay. And we're still not even not even a little close. I mean, we're going from 2% to 4%. Yay. Right. That's double, double the number, but it's yeah. still a single digit. So yeah. Um, yeah, we have a long way to go. That said, I have now had the privilege, you know, my first 20 years of my career, I worked with exactly one female director. Wow. Now I've worked with, I, I don't even, I, I don't know, I might be up to a dozen now because um, I recurred on Queen Sugar. Mm -hmm. which is Oprah Winfrey and Ava DuVernay. And, and I never knew who my director would be when I'd show up, mm -hmm. but it was always going to be a woman. And uh, that was totally new for me. And I remember the very first day of my very first episode of Queen Sugar, I, I was entering the set and, you know, we're a small group here in New Orleans. And so a lot of us have worked together a lot of us worked together on Django for months. So we yeah. all kind of know each other. And, um, and as I'm arriving, I'm saying hi to the people I know from craft services and hi to the people I know from hair and makeup and hi, to, you know, I'm saying hi to everybody as I'm arriving. But I asked them all the same question. Um, listen, what is different about working for women? Because, you know, it was my first day and I, I wanted to know if there was some thing that would, I was ignorant. And which is sad. And uh, and they all said the exact same thing. They all said, there's no yelling. Oh. And I thought, wow, that is a sad statement about yeah. our industry that we allow these really abusive environments that are abusive to everybody, men and women equally. Um, well, not equally, but men and women both are being abused. Children are being abused uh, verbally all day, every day. And, and then there's also the other stuff that's now all come out about the physical abuse. But, um, but you know, I, we do all totally accept that, that a lot of people we work with are abusive and mentally unbalanced. And we just suck it up. And that, I'm sure, will happen eventually when you have a thousand women directing. When you have 10,000 women directing, I'm sure there will be abusive women among them. Mm -hmm. And we will hear stories of, oh, Sally so-and-so was a terribly abusive director. I'm sure that will happen because it's not just that only men are abusive. It's just that only men are in charge. Right. Yeah. So once we even that out, I'm sure there will be abusive women as well. But we're, we have to stop allowing it to be normalized. Mm -hmm. I, I, I'm, I, you know, I, I really was blown away by uh, AOC's commentary last night. This is a very timely conversation because she's the first person I've ever seen who was like, yeah, I do not, I'm not playing along. It's not okay. You're not allowed to call me a fucking bitch. That's just not okay. And I would, 
that just wouldn't have occurred to me the way I was brought up in this industry and, and modeling and, you know, which modeling is gruesome. That's a gruesome career. But yeah, it just wouldn't have occurred to me to, to disobey. Because you get so hurt if you're being obedient. I couldn't mm -hmm. imagine what might happen to me if I had been disobedient, you know? Mm -hmm. So, yeah. I mean, I guess that's a fear thing operating on us, but, you know, it works. <laughs> I didn't want to, if you pop your head up, it might get chopped off. Yeah. Um, I remembered uh, AOC's words because as I was saying, hey, I'm, you know, I'm a father and uh, I'm a husband and her words were in my ears. I'm like, okay, this is different, but I still feel bad saying it for some reason. And it's because I, I just watched it. And that was yesterday when I saw those uh, those comments. It's Yeah, and for people who yeah. don't know what we're talking about, she was called that by a fellow senator at uh, work, you know, yeah. on the steps of the Capitol. And yep. that's just not okay. Nope. And then I mean, she she's a newly really elected help. official. Yeah, he didn't really apologize, and he basically said, "Look, I'm a, I'm a husband and a father. I, I know how to, you know, treat women." Yeah. Like so he, she pointed at him and said, "I'm so glad you did that, so that we could see that husbands and fathers do that yeah. at work, in yeah. public, and yeah. think it's okay, and let's not do that anymore." These are revolutionary words, and they might change things. I don't know. I've been here before. I've seen things almost change. Look, I marched on Washington in 1979. Okay. Okay. Most people watching this were not born in 1979. Mm. And I was already marching on Washington for the Equal Rights Amendment, which is now over 100 years old and has still not passed. Yeah. That only just says that I belong in the Constitution too. No. Yeah. So, no. so no. you know, for me, my mom made me go to that march. And when she took me, she said, I was kicking and screaming. I did not want to go. And she was like, Laura, I am not doing this for me. I am doing this for you. I will never see the benefit of this in my lifetime. I was in 79. My mom's turning 80 next month. And sadly, she's right. She did not see the benefit of it in her lifetime. Yeah. But I have hope that I might see it in my lifetime. I hope so. Um, we're, we're getting closer, we're getting closer to, uh, I mean, there are a lot more women, uh, thankfully in Congress and in Senate. Um, hopefully yeah, we still make 63 cents on the dollar here in Louisiana and worse if you're a person of color. So a woman of color. So, you know, it's, it's a long way to go, <laughs> tiny steps, but I'm, I'm seeing, uh, the positive signs and once, yeah. Uh, the person who's in charge, who should have never been in charge, is out in a few months. Uh, hopefully, we're going to have uh, kind of a breath of uh, fresh air and start changing things for the better. Um, I hope so. I really I, look. It'd be better for the industry as a whole as storytellers. As storytellers, we are chopping ourselves off at the knees by not including all these stories. And right. it's very strange. The job of director is the job of helping people to articulate their emotions. Why would anybody think that men were the best ones for that job? That is crazy. Men have so much trouble articulating their own emotions. And that's not even a, a, an insult. That's a biological uh, mm -hmm. fact. The male brain has 40% less connective tissue between the part that formulates feelings and the part that formulates words. 
So when a girl looks into your eyes and says, what are you thinking? And you're like, oh God, that's real because you really don't have that pathway of, oh, this feeling is connected to these words. So I don't know how it is that men got to be the ones in charge of directing, but I think when we expand that to include women, and when we expand to include more women's writing and more storytelling through the eyes of women, hmm. it will really see a shift in, in the human condition in, in general. Um, there's a new television show called P Valley. I've only seen one episode, but the opening credits were revolutionary for me. I didn't even know what I was watching. And I, I slapped my husband. I said, who made this? And he goes, why? And I, because he'd already seen it and he was excited for me to see it. I was like, who made this? And it's the opening credits. And he goes, why, why are you asking? And I said, cause I'm watching a, like naked stripper ladies and there's no male gaze. And he goes, uh-huh. <laughs> so he already knew what we were getting ready to watch was this thing that was sort of revolutionary. Yeah. And I think that's exciting that we, you know, still it has to be about women in their underwear, but now it's the story of how those women are doing and that that's their job. It was my job. It continues to be my job to be in my underwear. Mm -hmm. That's not any less valid than anybody else's job. It's... Yeah. Part of how I, you know, you have a uniform, everybody, you know, everybody has a uniform. My uniform often includes a thong. <laughs> so mm -hmm. that's, uh, or did anyway. And yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, I think that I played a mom in Never Back Down too, And uh, I was cast by Michael Jai White, who's known me since 1992. And um, he cast me as the mom of a fully grown man. And that was new and shocking for me because it was somebody who normally I would have had some love scene with. And, uh, and the mom is of course working at a strip joint in her underwear. So, you know, um, I, I'm all for that. Look, I'd love to be in my underwear in my nineties still doing this. I'm all for it. But as a real woman who is aging, yeah, I'm not gonna get myself fixed or, perfected or or cartoonized to make it comfortable for people i i would love the privilege of aging on camera i would love mm -hmm. if my country and my industry would allow me to age on camera that would be beautiful i would hope so uh there certainly is is plenty of uh space for it and there should be enough roles for it um michael j white who i love uh and uh i have talked about him a few times on the interviews um oh, how you yeah, I, I'm, I'm a martial arts uh, guy. Oh, I'm a martial yeah, arts fan. I grew up, you know, I, I've been watching his, his films for a while. And uh, he had a great scene in, uh, in, uh, in Kill Bill. And it got cut. So uh, when you said that you had, uh, initially you had a scene in China, I immediately went there and saying, well, that scene could have been cut because uh, I remember a lot of that stuff uh, being out in China. So yeah. we never even shot my scene. He at least got to shoot his scene. Yeah. Uh, and you can find his scene on the DVD extras. You can find his scene and watch it, which is great. Yeah. Um, I, I saw it. It's uh, again, he and David got a chance to, uh, to really go at it. I loved it. It was great. It was great. It was great. And I, and you know, it was, I, I'm excited that I was able to help facilitate uh, Michael being in the eye of Quentin. I helped bring him attention. Um, but I also had to be the one to tell him it wasn't going to make the cut. 
That's not. <laughs> that's because I was the friend, and and we thought maybe it would sound better coming from the friend than so. somebody else. And so yeah, I had to be the one to say. Yeah. News. Hey, um, okay. <laughs> I I have twenty uh, more questions for you, but we're we're definitely uh, um, out of time. So. I'll ask you the last question and I will beg for you to come back for more later. Okay. Um, if you had a chance to speak to uh, to Laura, um, the younger version of you that was just starting out, what bit of acting advice would you give to her? Um, I'm evolving that lately. That's evolving for me now as the industry is evolving um, yeah. because now I'm, op I'm able to have bigger thoughts than I did before. But um, <clears throat> I will say one thing that I think a lot of people starting out get wrong mm -hmm. is the idea that if they just had the right agent, they would be working or mm -hmm. that they would make it, whatever that is. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, there's, a, there's an overall mistaken idea that you're just one discovery away from being, you know, Sandra Bullock or Emma Stone or whatever, you know, that if only they knew how good you are in your living room, they would all be clamoring to work with you. And, and it's their fact, the fact they don't know that you exist that is holding you up. And so it's your agent's fault for not getting you in front of those people and that's the whole holdup is just your agent. And maybe you don't have an agent, and so you put all your energy into getting an agent. I promise you that when you're starting out, whatever agent you're able to get sucks. I mean, really, honestly, they're probably terrible. Yep. I mean, they might be okay, but they're probably terrible. Like, you're probably going to leave them the millisecond you can. I, I, the agent that got me Evening Star... I will always be grateful to Circle Talent for giving me the opportunity to go into Evening Star. I left them within a year of that. Of course I did. They were not a good agency. So, I mean, they were good for starting out, but they were not, they didn't have the tools I needed for the rest of my career. And so I, I worked at Leonardo DiCaprio's agency the day he left. And I I was a receptionist the day he left that agency and it was sad for everybody but that agency was no longer the appropriate place for his career his career had outgrown that agency so yeah. that's not because his agents were so good that's because leo's so good mm -hmm. so forget the agency thing and forget the thing about breaks and all that is not how this works it is not like um buy basketball wear jersey, get discovered by the NBA. That is not how anybody thinks basketball works. I don't know why they think it's that way in our industry. Mm -hmm. But the way to make it in our industry is work your butt off forever, forever, forever. That's the story. <laughs> don't quit. Work mm -hmm. really hard, don't quit. That's, that's how you make it, is work really hard, don't quit. And by make it, I mean not quit. because mm -hmm. Making it means different things to different people. And, and you could be Sean Astin in the 80s and think you're making it and be Sean Astin, and, you know, Sean Astin in the early 2000s and be thinking that you're not making it. Or 
and then be Sean Astin now and think I'm having a moment again or what I don't know I mean it's a it's a it's not that thing of that you make it and then that's all okay mm -hmm. you know I wish that people understood that all that time you waste on thinking if only my agent were better if only I had an agent if only if all that energy you spend on that instead spend on your craft then people will find you in the crowd you will stick out at your auditions they will not be able to sleep at night thinking about how to work with you yeah. and you will work and you might never have the career you thought you were going to have but you will have the career that you can sustain yourself with that's really yours mm -hmm. you know like I think that's kind of the dream. That's living the dream is I do what I love for money yeah. and I make enough to live. I, I, I used to say I don't have a new car and now I don't even have a car. I live in a city where I just don't need a car. So, <laughs> um, but I, you know, I don't have a mansion. I don't, you know, I don't have all the trappings. So I don't have all those crazy bills. You know, I have to pay my agent, my manager, and myself. Yeah. And my bills are manageable, and so I'm able to support myself. And that, to me, is a dream come true. I am living my dream. I support mm -hmm. myself as an actor. I have health insurance. I have a pension as an actor. That, to mm -hmm. me, is the dream. And mm -hmm. would I still love for my future to hold some moment where I get to have a series regular part that, you know, pays my bills in a way that's kind of really cool. Mm -hmm. Sure, I'm not anti-money, you know, like yeah. I, I like money just like everybody else. But I I am not I, I think there's this confusion about what the job is and what it's for. Do this job if you love acting. Yeah. If you love fame, go, you know, shoot somebody famous and you'll be famous. Uh, yeah aim low so that they don't die i don't know you know i i don't know if you want to be famous there's so many ways to be famous go yell racist stuff at somebody in a 7-eleven and get filmed you know i mean you can be famous for anything to me yeah. famous is just not the thing if i were ever going to be famous i'd want it to be for like curing cancer <laughs> so yeah, yeah. so fame money all that kind of stuff if that's how you if that's what you're after then probably uh, there are probably a lot shorter more sure paths to fame and or money than acting mm -hmm. yeah because most of us will never work 95 percent of all child actors never get one job 95 percent of all grown actors will never make enough money to will never make more than five thousand a year and then there's that little 4% that makes between zero and 4,000, 5,000. And then there's the people that make enough to live, you know, like that it's focus well, on the, the craft, focus on loving the craft and doing this because you love the craft. Yeah. Uh, well, thank you for, uh, you know, for describing the name of the show, which is uh, kind of what I'm <laughs> Why I'm into this because uh, you either love acting or you don't, and that's that's the simple truth. Um, well, and you can have days. I mean, look, everybody has days. You can have days where you're like, "Oh my God, why did I run away and join the circus? This is the worst, stupidest job." Yeah. But 
that's because you love it that you get so mad. You know, yeah. it's not because it's terrible. It's because you love your job and therefore it makes you frustrated. Yeah. But yeah, I think I think all of us that work and, you know, there are plenty of us that do. I think all of us that work, we work for things other than just the money. Right. Yeah. yeah. Laura, um, thank you so much for coming on. I, I really, truly appreciate it. Uh, There's so many more questions I have for you. I, I know that I want to talk to you for at least the next three hours. But <laughs> you're, you're busy and uh, I have to run. So let's uh, let's end it here for now and you're always welcome to return so we can continue well our i promise you i will come back how about that uh, i i will take that and i'll take that promise um okay. thank you again and thank you to everybody for uh for enjoying this ride uh along with me it's an it's an incredible opportunity to speak uh to laura uh, i'm truly thankful to her and to you for being here for us thank you thank you